I want us this morning to go to the book of Zephaniah, if you would. Zephaniah prophesied during the reign of King Josiah. I can't imagine being a king at eight years old. I can't imagine being a king at all. (laughs) But eight years old, he had very good advisors around him, obviously. His father did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet Josiah was a man of God. Go figure. I've seen that happen before. I've seen God pull somebody out of an evil family, an evil uh, surrounding of people, kids that they ran with, and jerk that person out of that group. I remember I was in a pledging of fraternity, an unbeliever. And just before the initiation, I got pneumonia. I am convinced to this day that that came from the Lord. Because following that, and I missed the initiation, and they said, well, you, you know, we'll do it again for you. The initiation was, to, it, it's called hazing today. It was to be dropped off in the Everglades, and then you find your way out. That was the initiation. And I, after that, after I got sick, I absolutely lost total interest in a few weeks, just total interest in the fraternity. And I said, nah, I'm not interested in the fraternity at all anymore. And that's on a path of God taking my life and making it something new in Christ and Helga's life also. So I want us to look at at Zephaniah this morning. There's a focal point, and the focal point occurs in two places, verse 17 and verse 14 of chapter 1. It's the day of the Lord is near, or in verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. In fact, that day, that day of the great day of the Lord is mentioned 13 times in the first chapter alone, or referred to it. It's a great day that Zephaniah says approaching, and it's a great day of judgment. It's a great day that will be poured out on all mankind, and it's a great day that will be poured out on Judah. Now, God's wrath has already been poured out on the nation of Israel. You know, after Solomon, they split Israel and Judah. The ten tribes of Israel are already gone. They're in Assyria. They're in captivity. They're in bondage, never to be heard of again. Two tribes are left, Judah and Benjamin. And it's out of Judah, obviously, that the Messiah finally comes. But God's judgment is going to be poured out royally on Judah because of the previous king's sin who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They had profaned the name of God. They had rejected his law. They had rejected his law code and his law of love. And we have done the same in Christ. We have rejected the resurrection. We have rejected the death of Christ. We have rejected the love of Christ. 
we have rejected God's only provision for sin. Taking care of guilt before a living God. The Bible says all have sinned. So the whole globe is under the wrath of God. And God in his mercy and graciousness sent his son. So let's look beginning with verse 1 here in chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. Now, I don't want to skip over this little word, Lord, here. In your Bible, that should be capitalized. Because it's God's name. It's Yahweh. It is the I am. That's why it's capitalized here. God is sovereign. He is committed to his worth. He is committed to his beauty. He is committed to his name. And he walks in infinite patience with us. And he's a merciful God. And yet he's a God that's going to pour out his wrath on all mankind. All mankind. This is the I am. And I want us to miss this. He is the I am. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is absolute reality. He is totally independent. In fact, everything but God is dependent upon God. Totally. Every breath we take this morning is dependent upon the hand of God. All the universe, by comparison to God, is nothing. It's all shadows. God is the substance. God is constant. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the standard of truth. He is the standard of goodness. God is the standard of beauty. He does whatever he pleases, and whatever he does is always right and always beautiful, and always in accord with what is true. God is the most important and valuable reality in the universe. He is treasure. He is the treasure. Jesus talked about the, the uh, man who found a treasure, buried it, bought the field so he could have the treasure. He sold everything he had. He talks about the man who had a pearl business. He found this great pearl. He sold everything he had to buy this pearl, to keep this pearl. That's the treasure. That's who God is. That's the reality of Yahweh as Lord. And so if that's the case, and it is, I think this morning it behooves us to listen to what God had to say to Judah through his prophet Zephaniah. He's speaking to Zephaniah 
He's speaking to us. So I want to look at what this speech is, what he is saying to Judah and to us this morning. Look at verse 2. He says, I will, this is God. God says, I will utterly sweep away everything. Now that's not hyperbole. (laughs) That is truth. Everything. From the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble of the wicked. That word is their their idols. Their idols are going to be swept away with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Why is this such a... Why, why is God giving us such a radical pronouncement of wrath upon us? Well, verse 17 tells us. It says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. This is how Judges puts it. For they have whored W-H-O-R-E-D, after other gods and bowed down to them. Romans 1 puts it this way. We have exchanged the glory of God, said, no, I don't want that. I want trinkets. I want cereal. (laughs) I want something else besides the great glory of God. We have minimized God, and it is, it is so evident that not only have we minimized God, that we have made much of ourselves. Look at me. We have exchanged the worship of Yahweh for the worship of Anything else, anything, even good things, we have bowed to. So the judgment of God, it'll be swift. It'll be comprehensive. And it'll be complete. And it will also vindicate his name. And it will vindicate his holiness. So verses 7 and 14 declare that there is coming a great day of the Lord. And they reiterate that it is near. I mean, it is really near to Judah. (laughs) They are within a few years of being Babylonian captivities. In Babylonian captivity for 70 years. All right, let's go on. Now the Lord narrows his judgment down from the world, he narrows it down to Judah in verses 4 through 16. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. 
and those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, and those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear to Milcom, and those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. This is a description of Judah's sin that provoked the wrath of God. It's the same provocation that makes his final wrath to the world. It is the worship of anything but Yahweh, the Lord. You know, we were created. We were created in the image of God, and because of that, we were created to glorify God, and we were created to worship him. And it's not until that happens in our lives that we are ever complete, that we are ever really satisfied. We were not created to worship anything else. No trinkets, no ideology, no person, no status, no family, no appearance, nothing, nothing, nothing except God and God alone. In Exodus 23, God says, You shall have no other gods beside me. So that's no other gods beside, adjoining, over, under, above, beyond the Lord. No other gods. This is the provocation that brought about the Lord's wrath and continues and will bring about the final pouring out of God's wrath upon mankind. Bowing down to anything besides God. It's horrific, it's horrendous, and it's treason. Because Yahweh created us, he is sovereign over us, and has the right to reign over everything and everybody. And the Bible says there is no seeking of God. There's only seeking of ourselves. So let's look at verse 7. It starts out with the words, Be silent before the Lord God. The reference to this day occurred 13 times in the first chapter, And throughout the entire book, it it occurs 20-some times. The reference to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is near. The day of God's wrath is near. It is very near. God was telling Sephaniah and telling Judah. And what does God say? He says, be silent. Judah, shut your mouths. Shut your mouths before the Lord. You have no rebuttal to God's complaint. God is not permitting you to argue against his complaint over you. Just like he told Job, after you go through all these chapters, he tells Job to stand up like a man. And God says, now I'm going to speak. And he does. And at the end, 
Job says, Job says, I have heard of you, but now I have seen you. We are called to submit to the Lord and to his holy authority before our lives. Look at verse 8. And on that day of the Lord's sacrifice, so Judah is going to become a sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Judah is going to be a sacrificial lamb and God's going to start his judgment. He's going to start with the leaders of the nation. And he's telling him, and those who are wearing foreign attire, the people of Judah were not to wear the clothing of the nations that surrounded them. They were not to look like those people. They were not to act like those people. They were not to worship like those people. They were not to eat like those people. The people of Judah were called by God to be a very distinct group of people. The whole nation of Israel was. And he says, I will, because what has happened here is they started to wear the attire and worship the idols uh, of the countries around them, which was, a, which was a sign of their disloyalty to God's covenant with them. They were making a mockery of God's calling them and making a covenant with them as he did. These were pagan nations with pagan customs, pagan origins, and they were to have no part in that. Now in verse 10, God's wrath turns narrow again to one city, the city of Jerusalem, to Zion. His focus now is bringing anguish and wailing as he's going to pour out his wrath. Verse 10 says, On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, one of the gates in Jerusalem, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. That's a section of the city. For the traitors are no more, and all who weigh out their silver are cut off. The judgment that's coming to Jerusalem will affect even the wealthy people, even the merchants, even the people who think that their money and their status is going to excuse them, but it won't. Verse 12 says, At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. They thought that God was morally indifferent to evil. <laughs> He's not going to do anything to us. It doesn't matter whether we do evil or not. 
Everything's going to be well. God is not morally indifferent. His judgment is coming, and he's telling them that my judgment is coming on you who think I'm indifferent to your sin. And then he says in verse 13, Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. All their life's hard work is going to go down the drain because Babylon is going to own it. Babylon is going to own their houses. Babylon is going to own their vineyards. Babylon is going to strip them. Babylon leaves in Israel the poorest, most unskilled people. The rest they took off to do whatever they needed for them to do in Babylon. So you work hard all your life, making ends meet, buying whatever you need to buy, and it's gone. It will be gone very quickly, coming soon. Verse 14 says this, The great day of the Lord is near, and it is hastening fast. Josiah died 609. Babylon started their assault in 605, just four years later. He says, The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries out aloud. The mighty man, the soldiers, the soldiers of Judah will be in anguish over the Babylonian army that's about to fall on them. Even their toughness will be challenged on the day of the Lord. Verse 15 starts in 16. A series of very frightening images that's going to occur in this nation. And if you look at these images, they recall some of the images when God came down on Mount Sinai, earthquakes, thunderings, shakings, and the people were terrified at that. And this is looking at that. And this is, images are, are very similar to that. So let's go to verse 15. It says, a day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. Jerusalem was burned. The temple torn down. The city burned. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. 
a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the lofty battlements. The day of the Lord is going to come. It's going to come quick, quickly. It's going to be absolutely devastating. It'll be worse than anything that those people have ever witnessed or seen in their lives because they have broken the covenant, the covenant of love that God had given them, a people to himself, a people from which the Messiah would come and take away our sin. And they had disobeyed and dishonored and distrusted the Lord. Now the judgment goes back to the whole world in this chapter. So we started out with judgment over the world. Then it came the judgment over Judah. Then it came God's judgment over Jerusalem. Now God expands it back over the entire world for a couple verses. Verse 17 says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. The Bible is very descriptive. Leaves nothing out. Poured out like dung. God's judgment will be absolutely consuming on the world. It says they will walk like blind men. When God made his covenant with Israel, and Deuteronomy tells us that if you break the covenant, this is one of the things that's going to happen. People will walk around like blind men. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. How bad is it? When Helga's mom was pregnant with Helga, the Americans bombed out her city. The Americans and the and the English in Germany. They bombed out her city. It was I mean Cologne was absolutely rubble. And her mom had to flee. Where do I go? Where do I live? What do I do? Pregnant? Can't get any food? Can't get milk? What what in the world? You know, you're just just like a blind person groping around for what to do. And God says, this is what will happen if you break my covenant. The gruesomeness of this day is not held back in any way, shape, or form. Blood poured out like dust, flesh like dung. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 9, if you would. Here we come to the final revelation final judgment the final day of the Lord I should say the final days of the Lord 
Start with verse 9. Now let me start with, hold on, let me start with, uh, let me start with 12. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. Notice the trumpet sound. It's also in Zephaniah, a trumpet. That means war. The the Babylonians were blowing the trumpet of war. Judah was blowing the trumpet of war. Now the God's trumpet is being blown. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year were released to kill a third of mankind. One third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire, sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lions and lions' heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. But these three plagues, a third of mankind, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by fire, by smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. Okay, go back to Zephaniah. I will bring disaster on mankind, God says in verse 17. And then he says in verse 18, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of wrath. Nothing's going to save them. Nothing's going to save us. On the day of God's wrath, Jesus Christ is the only salvation. There is absolutely no hope without him. No hope. No hope for us. No hope for our relatives. No hope for our friends. No hope for the world. Only the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, the earth will burn up. We'll have a new heaven and a new new earth. Now God is telling Zephaniah, And this is like a megaphone. It's coming to Judah, and now I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to the world eventually. Zephaniah didn't know whose lifetime that would be. He didn't know when that was going to occur, and neither do I. Neither do we, for sure. But all I know is when it was near in Zephaniah's time, it's a whole lot nearer now than it was then. God's a jealous God. He's jealous for his holiness. He's jealous for his sovereignty because sin is a gross violation of his right to rule and it's a gross violation of his purity. 
the Lord is also jealous of his people and for his people. He has given them and he has given us in Christ this covenant of love poured out with the very blood of his son and he is jealous for that covenant. It's a covenant that he gives to us in love, but it's a covenant demands absolute loyalty because he is God. And that's not arrogance on his part. It would be on my part or your part, but because he is God, he is the I am, he has no beginning, he has no end. He is not dependent on anything. He calls his creation to be loyal to the one who created him because he created us in love. He created us as a people to worship him because he knew that worshiping him would be the greatest thing that would satisfy our souls. All right, let's go on to chapter 2. Here's the Lord's call in the first three verses. It's really a call to humility for Judah and us. It's a call to turn from sin, repentance. He says, gather together. He says, yes, gather, O shameless nation. These people were no longer, no, God's calling them to repent and they were no longer sensitive to his call. It just blew it off. Verse 2 says, gather, to, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect. He's warning. Now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation, Judah. Today is the day of salvation, world, America, Europe, everywhere, India. Today is the day of salvation. Gather together before this day occurs of God's wrath. Before the day passes away like chaff, just blown away in the wind. Come and gone. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of anger of the Lord, warning, warning, warning. And then he says in verse 3, Seek the Lord. What a, what a chance of mercy. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. And then he says, this is an interesting phrase, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek righteousness. Paul writes to Timothy, pursue righteousness. Timothy, pursue godliness. Pursue, pursue steadfastness. Then he writes another letter to Timothy. And he again says, pursue righteousness along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 
So if we're calling on the Lord this morning from a pure heart, pursue God, pursue Him, pursue His righteousness, His holiness, His godliness. Seek the Lord, you humble of the land. You who do His just command, seek Him. Come together, church. Come together obediently and humbly seek the Lord before his judgment comes. Even us believers are called to follow the truths of God. In fact, Matthew, Jesus talks about manifesting the fruits of repentance. We must never, ever take casually these words from 1 Peter 4.17. This is what Peter said. For it is the time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? Of God. God's judgment is beginning with us, the church. And He's calling us to humbly seek Him. And if there's any sin in our life, to turn away from it because it's an abomination of the Lord. Then in verses 4 through 15, chapter 2, verses 4 through 15, God tells Judah and he tells Zephaniah that there is a judgment that's going to come also on all the nations that surround you. You're an island. You're an island to be an island of holiness before God. And all these other pagan nations, they will not escape the judgment of God. So we're not going to go through all those verses, but I want you to just listen to what God says is going to happen to these places. Gaza, you know where Gaza is. Gaza will be deserted. Ashkelon shall become desolation. Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan. Moab shall become like Sodom. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. Look at verse 9, chapter 2. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and possess, and the possessed survivors of my nation shall possess them. So at the same time, God is pronouncing judgment on the nation around Israel, around Judah. He's giving Judah hope. And the hope is that not all of Judah is going to be destroyed. Because he said the remnant of the people in Judah that will not be destroyed, they're going to be the ones 
that are going to attack the land. So there's hope here. There's hope for the people. People are in despair. But they know now that there's going to be a remnant of people that are going to be saved out of Judah. They will not be eliminated. Look at verse 11, chapter 2. It says, The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow, and to him shall bow down each in its place, all the lands of the nations. There will be a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And God is saying that time is coming. That time is on its way and it's very near. And then he says in verse 15, this is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, this is, what, this is the attitude of the city. I am and there is no one else. <laughs> it's all about me. And there's no one else exists. There is no God. If there is, he doesn't give a rip what I do. I am and there is, I am, the I am is God. Here the city was saying, I'm the I am. (laughs) Pure arrogance. Pure arrogance. All right, let's go into chapter 3. Now God moves again, and he's warning Jerusalem and the world again. Verse 1. Woe to her... Who is, woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to the Lord. Of course she doesn't. She doesn't because she says, I am and there is no one else. Verse 3. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till morning. Now he narrows his focus from the city down to the leaders again. The officials, they're predatory. The officials of Jerusalem are predatory. They're fierce. The religious leaders have desecrated and profaned the worship of the Lord. And then he gives us verse 5. I love this. Verse 5 says, The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. So you have the contrast of the arrogant, ruthless, shameless city who thinks that there is no one else but them. I can do what I want. You have that, and you contrast it now with who God is. Night and day. God says, I am the Lord within here. I'm righteous. I do no injustice. He does no injustice. Exactly opposite of what the leaders are doing in the city. 
Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust, they don't even know shame. They're not even ashamed of what they do. That's how bad it is in Jerusalem. The Lord is faithful and righteous, and they are the exact opposite. Verse 6, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept my correction. Then your dwelling did not be, then your dwelling would be not cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. God says, look, I've given you a window. I've given you a picture of what's going to happen. You have seen what I have done to the nations, Judah. You have seen when you came into Judah. You have witnessed what I did to the land of Canaan and what I did to the people of Canaan. You have witnessed that. Surely that would have gotten your attention. But it has not. He said, in fact, all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Decadent, abounding with fervor, their sin, and proud of it. This is the attitude of today. I want more sin and more sin and I'm going to brag about it because I'm proud of it. I don't have moral constraints on me. I don't want moral constraints on me. No one is going to tell me what to do or what not to do. Not even God, if there, if there really is a God. That's the thought pattern. That's the attitude. That's the arrogance. The arrogance of our culture. It's the arrogance of the world. And Romans 1 spirals down and it picks up speed as it goes down. Verse 9, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, then all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him, and with one accord. So in all this, this window of judgment that's coming to the world and to Jerusalem and to Judah, to all the way down through the ages, to us or people live after us, all this judgment, now God opens this window of mercy to them. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a people, and I'm going to give them a new heart. And what I'm going to do is, with that new heart, out of that new heart is going to come a new way of thinking and speaking and acting and living. 
And that's the hope that he has given to us right here. This verse is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In, in Ezekiel, God says, I will give them a new heart, a new life. He said, I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. That is exactly what the world needs. The world needs a new heart because the heart that is in the world and in the people without Christ, the Bible said, is desperately wicked. You know that, that attitude that I said reigns today? I don't want any moral constraints on me. I'm sin. I'm proud of it. I don't want anything to do with God. That's not new. That's the exact attitude I had before I came to Christ. I didn't want any constraints upon me. Parents, God, or any constraints at all. And so at home, constant battles. Constant battles. I put my parents through a living you-know-what. I had godly parents, and I didn't want their God. And I had very patient parents, very praying parents. And a father who said to me when I went to college, went to community college first, and I lived at home, still in this war with them, my dad said to me then, okay, he said, these are the rules to live in my house. If you don't live by those rules, you are now free to go. I was dumb as a rock, but I was not as dumb. I knew that I could not afford to go. <laughs> I, needed, I needed some money behind me. And so I stayed, and the war went on for another couple years that's the attitude and God says you know what I'm going to give that boy (laughs) I'm going to give him a new heart the very guy that wanted nothing to do with me and wanted no constraints on his life I'm going to give him a new heart that's exactly what happened in a revival service, Helga and I, we were both saved in the same service six months before we got married. God gave us both new hearts. Totally different lives. Totally different lives. And God is saying here, that's what I'm going to do. And then he says in verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. He's, he's calling Israel now back to himself. He says, I'm going to bring Israel back to me. Not only am I going to bring people in Christ back to me, I'm going to bring Jews in Christ back to me. And Paul tells us that that's going to be fulfilled. He said, right now there's a blindness over the Jews. And that is true. Jew, some Jews are coming to Christ. But it's not a lot. 
Not a lot. But one day, that blindness is going to be removed, and they're going to see Jesus as he is. And there's going to be this mass conversion of Jews. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 11. All right, let's go on. He says in verse 12, But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, and they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice, they shall speak no lies, nor shall they be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they will gaze and lie down, graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. This is God's plan. I'm going to make a new people. Jewish people, Gentiles people, and they're all going to be one people. Verse 14, and then he says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. This is what God has done for us in Christ. He has taken away his judgments. His final judgments poured out upon the earth where one-third of mankind is going to be destroyed because of their sin. God has removed that from those who are in Christ because Christ took all his judgment for sin on himself. The full orb of the wrath of God was poured out on his own son and it killed him. And that was God's plan. And that was Christ's plan. All before the foundation of the world, the Bible tells us. And look out what God's going to do. Verse 17, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one, he's a warrior God, a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you. Now get this. This is God. All right? God's rejoicing over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Where does the joy in God that he has in his people, that's what he says, he has a joy in his people, where does, that joy from, where does that joy in God come from? It comes from our joy in God. When, we're, when we have this joy in God, there's a joy in God himself that comes to us. In fact, Jesus said, my joy will be in you. The very joy that Jesus has in the Godhead is in us. And when that joy is in us, then God's joy is reigning over us. That's all I know. I can't tell you how that works anymore. That's all I know. But that's what it says. He's rejoicing over us with gladness. And in verse 18, and, oh, and he also says, I will ex- exalt over you with loud singing. The Bible tells us, When one sinner comes to Christ and repents, there's a party in heaven with the angels. (laughs) 
We have a singing God. So in all the judgment and all the wrath, God says, I'm going to take a people. I'm going to make them for myself. I'm going to give them a new heart. And then we have so much joy in me, and I'm going to have so much joy in them, I'm just going to sing over them. And we go on. I'm going to stop there. Let us not forget the Lord is our treasure. And if we do not whore after other gods, then Deuteronomy 33, 29 will be ours. And this is what it says. Happy are you, O Israel, or happy are you, church, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of yourself, and the sword of your triumph? There is no other people like the church. There are no other people in the world like the people of God. People, I was just listening to a song by Babu, who's one of our translators in Nepal, and it was on Facebook this morning, and he was singing uh, How Great Thou Art in Nepali, playing the guitar and singing. And, you know, I thought, you know what Babu, Babu's got a bachelor's degree, and you know what he does? He's a rice farmer. He doesn't own the farm. He's a laborer. lives in a dirt house with a dirt floor. And he's singing, ha, great, thou art. That's joy. Let's pray.